This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 212. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, flying solo today in this episode, as we are just playing back a pre-recorded interview together with Mr. Andrew Branca. It's an interview that Jacob and I did at SHOT Show earlier this year, and uh, this is a really great episode. Uh, Andrew Branca's episode we recorded with him a number of months ago has been one of our most popular episodes ever of the podcast, so we asked, we, we begged, actually it didn't take too much, but we, we asked Andrew if he would hook up with us at SHOT Show and sit down for an interview so we could do kind of like a, a part two uh, to that uh, episode that we did several months ago. And uh, it was great. So we asked him a bunch of really interesting and intriguing questions, and he does a really excellent job of breaking it down as he as he is known for and making it super simple for you to understand these Sometimes difficult and convoluted laws surrounding self-defense. Today's episode is brought to you by Springfield Armory, as we that is our, our deal with them. They were so kind to uh, let us come into the Springfield Armory booth while at SHOT Show, take it over for a few hours, and record episodes and interviews like this. And so we appreciate Springfield Armory for their support of the podcast and making today's episode possible. And also... Today's other honorary sponsor is Law of Self-Defense, uh, which is Andrew Branca's company, lawofselfdefense.com. We appreciate him and for everything he does for us at the podcast. And also, today's episode is made possible by Guardian Nation. Head on over to guardiannation.com and see what you've been missing out on if you're not already a member. I hope that you will check it out. I teased in, a, in our last episode, I've got here in my hand a uh, challenge coin that is something that you you can have a chance to uh, to receive. And we don't really give a lot of details on that, but uh, let's just say you need to be a Guardian Nation member for a certain amount of time. So anyway, appreciate uh, all of you. Uh, we are going to get into now the interview with Andrew. Uh, so got a bunch of people participating through Facebook Live today. Uh, glad to have you all be a part of this as well. And uh, I will maybe address a few comments and questions that come up uh, towards the end of the episode um, through, that come up through the comments section of the Facebook Live here. I do have one question that came in through the uh, podcast at concealedcarry.com email inbox. And uh, so I will save this more towards the end of the episode. I will uh, share this from a listener named Aaron, a good guy, really thoughtful uh, questions and ideas that he brought up in this email here. So uh, I will get to that uh, just to give you a little bit of a taste. I mean, he, he's touching on um, basically the, the uh, Parkland shooting and some of his thoughts surrounding that. Um, got some really, really interesting and intriguing things to talk about uh, surrounding that situation. So I know we've been talking about it a lot lately, but he just brings up some points I, I find really interesting. So We'll get to that stuff. All right, here we go. We're going to play back now the interview with Andrew Branca from SHOT Show 2018. Uh, big time Q&A session with him, about a half hour long here. And uh, so those of you on Facebook, stick around. Uh, I'm sure you're going to learn a lot. And here we go. I'm going to hit the play button now. Well, we are sitting here, Jacob and Riley, with the Concealed Carry Podcast, sitting here at the Springfield Armory booth at SHOT Show 2018. 
getting ready to talk with Mr. Andrew Branca. Nice Thank to see you again, sir. Riley. Andrew, Jacob, welcome. Thanks so much for coming out and uh, doing this with us, making a little time of, out of your busy schedule. It's my pleasure. I understand you're doing some stuff later today. Um, outdoor Channel? Outdoor Channel, yep. yeah. It's, uh, well, it's shot. Everybody stays busy. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, we'll, we'll uh, tr- try to get through this as quick as we can, and but yet still put together some really good questions and answers and content, legal content for our listeners. Um, so, Andrew, tell me, what is... Um, what are you seeing right now in the country? Um, I mean, we see these shootings happening all the time now, uh, whether it's officer-involved, a lot of officer-involved ones, obviously. A lot of legal constructs come out of that. I know that's not necessarily your specialty as far as the, the law enforcement side of it, but from a self-defense side of it, I mean, what, what do you see that's maybe concerning to you or that really jumps out at you as we see all these things happening, um, the media that it's generating, the interest that it's generating, both good and, and negative, I'm just curious to get your take on that to start with. Well, it's really the age-old problem is that people simply don't know what the rules of engagement are for use of force. They, they may think they do, and they may even have gotten some instruction, but often the instruction they've gotten is either extremely limited, uh, it, it's not actionable, by which I mean it wasn't translated into plain English for them, so they took a CCW course and the instructor read a bunch of statutes to them, and they, that doesn't lead people to really understand how the law will be applied. Uh, or they have nothing at all, uh, or something a friend told them, or a buddy who once dated a cop told them. There's, there's lots of sources of self-defense law information out there, but unfortunately most of them are not very good or genuinely informed sources that have actually looked at the actual law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where do you think those, those sources, I mean, what, what are some of those sources where we're falling short? Oh, most of them. I mean, m- most attorneys, for example, are not great sources of self-defense law information. I can tell you in, in three years of law school, we didn't spend three minutes talking about self-defense law. So we're not taught this stuff in law school. Unless you're a criminal defense attorney, you don't learn this stuff after law school. And even if you are a criminal defense attorney, 90% plus of claims of self-defense are nonsense. They're bad guys trying to escape legal liability. So even most criminal defense attorneys who may argue a lot of self-defense cases, they're not arguing good guy self-defense cases. They're arguing bad guy self-defense cases. And those cases are profoundly different than, bad, than good guy self-defense cases, uh, particularly in the sense that they tend to be inherently defective because it was a bad guy. So they're easy to defeat. So you, it's almost like a football team that has a lot of experience getting to the 50-yard line but never scoring a touchdown. I mean, most criminal defense attorneys might get three or four good guy cases of self-defense in their career over decades. Right. So they don't really have an opportunity to develop real expertise in those. Uh, yeah. most, most police officers, not great sources of self-defense law information right. for two reasons. Most of what they're taught in the academy about use of force law and its limits is not intended to protect the officer from criminal liability. It's intended to protect his department from civil liability when they're sued because some officer used force against somebody. Plus, although strictly speaking, the law of self-defense is not different for police than it is for persons, there's contextual differences. So, for example, right. as a civilian, I could never be the physical aggressor in a fight. I would lose self-defense if I was the first person to initiate or threaten force. Police officers have to routinely initiate and threaten force, right? And for the purpose of making arrests and so forth. Uh, so the dynamics tend to be different. So their perception of use of force tends to be different as a result of their jobs. Mm. What about, um, you know, is another potential difference that they have more experience or context? You know, is there something to be said about what would be reasonable to an officer would be, would be different than what's reasonable to a civilian? 
Sure, they can. They might well respond better to stress and make better decisions under stress because of their re- repeated exposure to it. We all get better at things that we do frequently. Most of us are never in a physical confrontation of our normal American, well-socialized adults. Uh, cops get into physical altercations on a regular basis or at least face the imminent threat that they might have to go hands-on. But we don't do that as normal people. If we, if we perceive that kind of threat, we tend to vacate the area so we avoid the possibility, which, is, of course, is the smart thing to do. But it means we may not be as prepared for that kind of physical encounter as a law enforcement officer would be, assuming we're talking the kind of law enforcement officer who's on the street, who's doing these kinds of jobs, not, not in a more administrative kind of role, of course. Sure, yeah. sure. I think, you know, what I, what I found interesting, and I, I know we, we recorded a podcast with you in some, sometime, it was like 148 or so. It's been one of the most popular podcasts, uh, despite it being kind of late in our podcast series, we've seen tons of downloads, and uh, I think you really opened up a lot of eyes talking about Stand Your Ground, Castle Doctrine, what those actually are, what they are not. Um, but I still see that there's some, some what I'll call legal myths in our industry that are self-created. You know, it's our fault that these myths are out there. And as an industry, it's our responsibility to resolve them. I'll give you an example. We recently published an article on our site about when you, when you should use deadly force. And comments began to ensue at the bottom of the article to the effect of, you know, kill them dead because then, then they, they can't testify against you and they can't sue you. You know, dead man tells no tales kind of things. And, you know, I, I was responding to these comments. We were going back and forth with these people. And it became very evident to me that this is, this is not necessarily the fault of the gun owner. This is the fault of the instructor, the friend, the buddy, you know, the, the age-old decades worth of people in our industry who have been giving people bad information. Yep. Uh, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of, you know, shoot them dead because they can't talk and or they can't sue you and, and you know, where the, the core obvious flaws are there. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm glad you brought that one up in particular. We, we recently produced a DVD that we call the top 10 things you probably don't know about self-defense law, where we stepped through a number, well, 10, obviously, <laughs> of these myths. That wasn't one of them, because there's so many, we couldn't fit them all on one DVD. But I guess next year, maybe we'll do the next 10 things you probably don't know. And that's definitely go. one of them. I hear it all the time. If you kill them, they can't testify against you. Um, and they can't sue you. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that dead body is testifying against you. There's forensics evidence there. That's testimony, even if it's silent on that part of the, the person who you shot. And while they may not be able to sue you, I can assure you their heirs can sue you. Um, their children can sue you. Their spouses, their parents can sue you. And they will sue you. Uh, so you don't yeah. escape anything. And in fact, the the threshold of legal risk you've incurred is vastly greater than if you hadn't killed them. The best possible world we can have is where we manage to, when acting in self-defense, neutralize that threat without causing them any harm at all. Because the more harm we cause them, the more legal jeopardy we're in. If we merely frighten someone, that's a much lesser threshold of legal liability than if we maim them or kill them, both criminally and in civil court. So if you point a gun at somebody who's attacking you and they run away, so you've never had to fire a shot, you never caused them an injury, you might be charged with aggravated assault and then have to justify that as an act of self-defense. But that's all you're charged with. You're not charged with murder. So the most you're looking at, even if your self-defense claim were to collapse, might be a 10-year sentence, worst-case scenario. You do a third of that, you're out on parole, good behavior. So you still have a potential for a life after. If you kill them and your self-defense claim is inadequate, that's life in prison without possibility of parole. Life right. is over. And the same thing in a civil case. You know, the, the amount of monetary damages you might have to pay someone because you inappropriately pointed a gun at them is vastly lower than you might have to pay if you yeah. take their life. Yeah. 
Do you mind if I ask you a question about a uh, recent case uh, that I was following a little bit? I find rather fascinating. I know there's certainly a lot of public outrage about this case, and I don't know if you're well-read on this or not. So if you're not, that's okay, and we can move on. Uh, but this is the uh, Jose uh, Zarate, that the uh, immigrant in uh, California that shot Catherine Steinle. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with that, the details of that case at all? And yeah, I mean, it wasn't a self-defense case, so I didn't follow it closely, but I've right. read the papers. I'm generally familiar with so it. So one thing I know that people are really like, they have a hard time understanding, and I'm hoping you can kind of understand this this process for us a little bit uh, for our listeners, is you know people are outraged as to why he wasn't found guilty in that case. Right. So we never know why a jury arrives at its verdict. Mm-hmm. Uh, juries aren't required to do that. It's one question that often comes up where, um, I'll be speaking about some legal issue, potential legal issue in a self-defense case, and someone will say, well, show me a case where that actually mattered. Well, the truth is we never know what actually mattered. We're always making inferences because the jury doesn't tell us this was the decisive piece of evidence. Generally, there's not one decisive piece of evidence. It's a, it's a puzzle of many pieces. So we don't know why the jury arrived at that verdict. All we can do is if we, if we presume that they made the decision rationally, that it wasn't simply a runaway jury, uh, that they were making some kind of political statement. If we presume they made the decision rationally, the only way I can see that they came to an acquittal as opposed to at least involuntary manslaughter was that they believed when he picked up that package with the gun in it, he literally did not know there was a gun. And it simply went off. Uh, so he just picked up a cloth, what looked like a cloth or whatever it was to him, and he touched it and somehow depressed the trigger and the gun fired. That's the only scenario in which I can imagine he had zero criminal liability, even reckless liability, under that circumstance. The moment he knows he has a gun, well, possession of a gun has a very high legal threshold, a duty of care. Uh, Now, I guess they could argue, well, you know, he's from Mexico, he's never seen a gun, he's never handled a gun, but I don't believe those arguments were made. I believe the argument they made was he literally didn't know there was a gun, so he didn't know he was creating any criminally negligent risk there. Uh, now, of course, I don't know if that's true. I'm making up sure, a legal sure, argument, right? right? Uh, but other than that, if he knew there was a gun and he acted negligently, that would be involuntary manslaughter, even if he didn't intend to harm anybody because he was creating an unnecessary risk of death or grave bodily harm. And, of course, if he deliberately shot her, then it would just be outright murder. Right. No. Um, okay. Very very interesting uh, explanation of that case. Here's another little question for you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> What about a situation where a concealed carrier is carrying a firearm and maybe that firearm is known potentially to discharge if dropped? I know I'm kind of treading on some some sensitive areas here, but I'm just curious from a a legal perspective, a liability perspective, or even kind of touching on self-defense law, I don't know what you want to call it, but what about a situation, what kind of issues would I need to be concerned with as a concealed carrier carrying a gun that maybe somehow goes off and it injures somebody else. Could I face any charges, particularly if I knew there was an issue with that gun? It, it's, it's possible. Okay. Um, a, a prosecutor, for example, in a criminal case could argue that you knew by hand carrying that gun that you were creating a foreseeable risk of death or grave bodily harm to an innocent person uh, if the gun was dropped. Then it becomes your responsibility not to drop the gun. If you drop the gun and it goes off, they'll say, well, you knew that could happen. You yeah. created that risk. Same in civil court. You're doing exactly the same thing there. I think the only counter-argument, and that's, that's literally true, right? I mean, if you got the notice from SIG and they can document it and you chose not to send your gun in for the free upgrade, that's an argument that could definitely be made by someone to find fault with you. Uh, the counter-argument would be, well, for all we know, all guns do this. I mean, just because we found right. it out with SIG doesn't mean 
that other guns similarly situated don't do this, and if all guns or many guns do this, then it's not an unusual risk. It's an inherent part of carrying a gun. So if I were the defense and I had a client who was facing that situation, I would definitely go out and buy a whole bunch of guns and start dropping them <laughs> and see if I could make any others have the same yeah. effect or technically hire an expert to do that on our behalf. Sure. Maybe you guys. It'd be a fun, sure. fun experiment. <laughs> well, we did that with, with a gun. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's no longer shootable, that's for sure. <laughs> but, of course, this kind of risk is kind of inherent to a gun, right? I mean, you right. could be handling a gun and depress the trigger under stress when you don't mean to. Guns are, are dangerous instruments, and that's why the yeah. standard of care is so high. Right. Uh, here's an interesting for you, one for you, Andrew. I've been thinking about this one uh, since the last time we talked. A lot of states um, don't make a differentiation for the use of force be, you know, as far as your ability to use force uh, d- different, differently, whether it's the threat of force versus the use of force. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, is there a difference between, well, under these circumstances, I can use the threat of deadly force to try and stop a threat, but I can't actually use the deadly force. Uh, we have a lot of students who will come through a class, and they'd like to believe that, well, in, th- in this circumstance, maybe I can't shoot this individual, but maybe I could get out my gun and wave it. Right. You know, so talk a little bit about, you know, is it the same line? Are they different lines? And, and inherently, what you would advise that, that question? Yeah, it's actually a very sophisticated question, a multifaceted question, because it brings a lot of areas of self-defense law into play. One of them we already talked about. Your legal liability is greater if you actually cause someone harm, right? So that's one difference between right. mere threat and actual use. The trouble you run into with mere threat is the moment that you display a gun or make someone aware you have a gun, right? I have a gun. To change their behavior, you've technically met all the conditions for aggravated assault. You've put someone in fear of death, imminent death or grave bodily harm. That you now better be prepared to justify self-defense. And maybe you can do that. That's fine. They were a genuine threat. You're all good to go. But if you can't do that, you just committed a serious felony. It's good for 10 to 15 years in many jurisdictions. Even if you didn't take the gun out of the holster. Even if you didn't display it. Even if you didn't actually have a gun. Because all that matters with aggravated assault is the mental state you created in that other person. Well, when we act in self-defense, when we draw that gun to a low ready and tell the guy to get back, what are we doing? We're putting him in imminent fear of death or grave bodily harm for the purpose of changing his behavior. That's what the act of self-defense is. But we then need to be prepared to make that self-defense argument. And not just articulate self-defense. We do need to have an articulable narrative of self-defense. But unfortunately, when I hear a lot of people use that phrase, I get the feeling that in their minds, it just means have a good story. But a story is not enough. The story has to be evidence-based. You have to be able to articulate very specific, concrete reasons why you did what you did. Things you saw, things you observed, specific conduct, behavior of that other person. Simply being afraid of somebody is not enough to, in most jurisdictions, threaten or use deadly force on them. Now, there are some jurisdictions that attempt to make this distinction in law. They'll say, well, you can threaten uh, under, at a le- lesser threshold than you would need to have to justify actually using the gun. The danger you run into, of course, is that the, the margin between threaten and use is paper thin. Right? You, we know statistically that very often, in especially civilian self-defense situations, mere display of the gun solves the problem. But you can't presume that's going to be the case. Right. So in my mind, that gun should not come out unless the circumstances would also warrant firing the shot. Now, I'm not saying automatically fire the shot. I'm not encouraging people to shoot when they don't need to. Right. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is that you may need to fire that shot the moment the gun comes out. And the circumstances, the conditions that have to be met for firing 
If you've met those, you're good also for not shooting. You might get the gun out, the other person sees it, the dynamics change, and now you feel you have the luxury of not having to fire that shot, incur that greater legal risk, potentially take a human life, and that's all good. That's a personal decision you need to make. But because you would have been entitled, you're also covered for mere display. Mm. Wow. That's well, a, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. That was one. a loaded question. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, and I appreciate what you said, and I think the major takeaway for me was, you know, don't, don't, don't draw that fireman and think, well, right now I, I could legally, you know, threaten potentially whatever in my mind. More important is that, that gun should come out when we legitimately think that we might actually need to defend against a threat, and under those circumstances it shouldn't, you know, if we end up only threatening, great, it shouldn't matter because yeah. yeah. we've, we've met the conditions. So... At least half the cases I consult on as an attorney are cases where someone displayed the gun under inappropriate circumstances, and now they're charged with aggravated assault. And these are generally people who've never been in trouble with the law before, and now yeah. they're facing a felony. Yeah. They're facing going to trial, a felony. They'll spend years of their lives in jail under the best of circumstances. And the, the, the reason this happens, and often, you know, they're like, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. What happens is the stress of the moment induces physiological fear in them. It, it, they are facing a threat. It's a genuine threat. It's just not a deadly force threat. But they don't, so they'd be entitled to use non-deadly force in self-defense, but they don't have any means of non-deadly force in self-defense. Sure. All they have is the gun. They went and got their concealed carry permit. They put that gun in their purse or on their belt. They went out in the world. And then they met the more common scenario. If you look at the FBI statistics, you're five times more likely to be facing a non-deadly force threat to simple assault than you are a deadly force threat. And you can't go to the gun for the more common scenario. It's why I tell my students, look, if you're going to carry a gun, and I encourage it if you're a responsible American citizen, I carry a gun every day of my adult life, make sure you also have a non-deadly means of self-defense for the five times more likely common scenario where you're going to need some degree of force, non-deadly force, to defend yourself. Because when all people have is the gun and they get scared, they go to the gun. Yeah. yeah. The most simple form of that, I guess, would be really just getting the heck out of that situation running away, right? Always better. Yeah. Always better. I mean, the, to me, the tiering is, you know, don't go to places where there may be a threat. If you're in a place where a threat might develop, be sensitive to it so you can avoid getting personally targeted. If you are personally targeted, that guy's looking at you, run away uh, if, if it's safely possible to do that. There's a whole series of steps that people should go through in terms of their tactical defense before they get close to going for that gun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know, I was just uh, scanning through some news stories involving whether it's brandishing of a firearm or even firing off warning shots. Now, so often people get in trouble with, with these sorts of things. I mean, is it, is it in your experience, and it kind of sounds like that, that's what you were saying a moment ago, is that most of the time these are people that are well-meaning people. They don't feel like they have another option. Uh, they, they get overwhelmed. Is that your experience then? Is most of the time it's, it's decent folk that just get a little bit, you know, tripped up? Well... At least the cases I consult on, it's kind of a self-selected group. Sure. Uh, I do get cases that clearly were not self-defense, but I generally don't consult. I just tell them I can't help yeah. you. This was not self-defense. So uh, I, I tend only to work on good guy cases of self-defense because those are the ones where I can make a difference for people. Right. I'm not going to take a retainer from someone and then tell them 10 minutes later, well, sorry, you're just out of luck. Thanks yeah. for the money. Sure. Um, so generally the cases I work on, these are people who, if you put them on a line detector, and ask them if they acted in lawful self-defense, they would say yes yeah. and pass the line detector because in their minds they have a genuine good faith belief 
that they were acting in lawful self-defense. They can't believe they got arrested. They can't believe they're getting prosecuted because they genuinely believe they acted in self-defense, but they didn't know where the the boundaries were. Right. So they stepped over the boundary and never saw it. It was invisible to them. So as a technical legal matter, it simply wasn't self-defense. And self-defense is extremely binary. Either your conduct qualifies or it doesn't. You're in or you're out. There's no straddling. There's no middle ground. And if they accidentally stepped out one foot, whatever their use of force was, it wasn't lawful self-defense. They don't have the legal justification. And now they're at risk for paying the the legal consequences for that use of force. Now, what often happens in these cases where people really have no criminal history is they, they, when they're lucky, they get the benefit of discretion. So the authorities, the police, the sheriff, the prosecutor choose to use their discretion not to bring this case to trial, maybe not to arrest the person. And then we read about that in the newspaper or in the NRA magazine in the Armed Citizen section. We read all these anecdotes about people who used or threatened to use guns in self-defense. They don't get arrested. They don't get prosecuted. They don't get convicted. But in many of those cases, that didn't happen, not because they couldn't have been, not because they didn't do things wrong. They did things wrong. They are, in fact, vulnerable to arrest, prosecution, and conviction. But they got the benefit of the authority's discretion. And that happens quite often. The trouble is we can't count on it. That's a decision that's outside our control. And you're putting your entire life now in the hands of a prosecutor, for example, whose interests may not be aligned with your interests, who may have political ambitions, who may see opportunities here to advance himself at the cost of you and your liberty because you made yourself legally vulnerable to his discretion. Mm. Andrew, here's an interesting thing. that I, I was I was just pondering as you were talking about that um, I, I'm thinking about you know how often we go into a gun forum or a website or something like that and uh, you know people seem to be readily able to quote their own state statutes hey I just read this I know you know in Texas our law said you know and according to 18 12 104 you know they, they, they just seem to know this stuff and that, that framework that is created in that environment, and probably often the fault of some instructor who's pushed up some slides with some statutes and read through them, that's a significantly different framework for decision-making versus, I think, what you've been able to so well articulate in your book and in the content that you put out, your podcast, where you say, almost without exception, basically, you know, here's the footprint. Here, here's what has to happen in order for you to be justified in self-defense. Talk a little bit about what you think might be some of the dangers of people trying to read statutes. Know my, you know, I know my state's laws, and you know, I'm, I'm going to run with that. Well, I'm actually sympathetic to the instructors here. I mean, a lot of times the instructors are required by the state to teach specific statutes as part of a CCW class, sure, for example. Sure. And it's very difficult. The other form of law would really be case law, court decisions, appellate court decisions. And it's very difficult for a non-legal professional to read court decisions. They're written by lawyers, for lawyers. They're full of dense legalese. They're very difficult to understand. So instructors don't do that. They're not required to. It it would be difficult or or maybe not possible for them to to actually evaluate the case law and translate that into English for their students. So instead, they do what they can, which is they teach the statutes. And we all think of statutes as the law, right? A, a, A bill is in the legislature. It's passed by the legislature. The governor signs it. It becomes a law, a statute. The trouble with statutes is statutes by themselves don't have any effect in the real world. Uh, Statutes don't have effect in the real world until they're interpreted and applied by judges to real people in real cases. And that statute doesn't mean what the legislature might have hoped it would mean or intended it for it to mean. It means what that judge who's interpreting and applying that statute says it means because that's where it's being given real world effect. 
And it's not unusual for judges to interpret and apply statutory language in a way that seems counter to the apparent plain English reading of the statute. Sure, sure. And I, I tell my clients, if you've read the statutory language, but you haven't read the cases that apply those statutes, you don't really know what those statutes mean. Because they don't mean what the legislature might have wanted them to mean. They mean what the judges say they mean. Um, so a lot of people will read their, their statutory language, be taught their statutes, and now they think they know the law. That's not the law. That's almost like a parts list. Hmm. But it's not how the pieces go together and actually work. Sure. The other problem is even when that doesn't happen, there's words in statutes that sound self-evident, not very complicated, like the word reasonable. Uh, if you look at self-defense statutes, reasonable is everywhere. It's thick on the ground, and that reflects the weight that the law puts on this element of reasonableness in, a, in the use of force claim. But a lot of people think, well, I'm a reasonable person. Of course I'll be reasonable. But we sure. have to keep in mind that what matters, the judgment call that matters on reasonableness is not yours or mine or whoever acted in self-defense. The judgment call on reasonableness that matters is the jury's or the judges, because it's their determination of whether or not your conduct was reasonable that counts at the end of the day. I don't care how reasonable you thought you were. If right. they thought you weren't, you're done. Yep. So people don't think that through. They think, oh, the statute requires that I conduct myself reasonably. That's easy. I can do that. But it doesn't matter whether you think you were doing it. It matters whether they think you were doing it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who in their minds have ideas of what's reasonable, that's inconsistent with what the jury will be told to do in evaluating reasonableness, like using deadly force to defend property. Right? Oh, someone's trespassing on my property. I can just threaten them with a gun. I can shoot them with a gun. Well, the jury's going to be told, no, that's not within the scope of a reasonable use of force, and you have to find the person guilty as a result. And it's another one of those cases where the defendant genuinely believed he was acting lawfully. But again, he simply didn't know where the boundaries were and stepped over it without even knowing yeah, so it's a it's a tough situation, to your point, right, that uh, instructors are often bound, or at very least, they don't have many other options than to push up a statute and say, this is what it says, this is what I think it means, and that sometimes puts people in a, a, a complicated situation. For me, that's one of the greatest values of, of your content, of, of the law of self-defense that you put out there, is that it creates a much easier and simpler, and I'll say almost universal, method to approach and understand where the boundary line is. It is universal. It applies in every state. Yeah. Uh, and in part, that reflects the fact that self-defense law is not new. It dates back right. to the ancient Greeks and Romans. And our version comes from English common law over hundreds of years. Um, so the fundamental principles are well-defined and understood. It, it gets garbled when it gets put into statutory language. And when you read court cases, they tend to only talk about the components that are relevant in that case, and they leave out the ones that aren't, which is reasonable, but it gives you a very fractionated view sure. of the elements. But the truth is, self-defense law is not complicated. There's five elements, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Just like there's four rules of gun safety, there's only five. There's not more than that. It's not hard to learn. And it'll sound self-promoting, but the Kindle version of our book is nine bucks and change. I mean, for nine bucks and change, right. you can get the world's best plain English education on self-defense law that there is. Now, I hope you give me more money than that. I mean, <laughs> we do DVDs and live classes and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but of all, 
if all you spend is nine ninety nine, and it's a very easy book to read, three four hours, you're you're through the entire thing. You'll know ninety percent of what I know about self defense law. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I, speaking of, of your DVDs and thing, I wanted to come back to the one you mentioned, the one you recently put out, which is I think it was ten things you don't know about self defense law. Now we know that there's there's five elements of self defense uh, that have to be met to, to you know talk about the boundary. What are you, you what are some of these ten things? You know, you tell us one or two of the things that are on that DVD so that people can go get the rest. Sure. Well, it's things that seem self-evident when they're said out loud, but people seem not to think about them until they've been said out loud. Sure. Things like the fact that the jury, that, in fact, nobody knows what actually happened uh, because they weren't there, right? When you shot that guy in self-defense, the police who arrived on the scene weren't there when you shot him. They don't know what happened. Sure. The prosecutor wasn't there. The judge wasn't there. The jury, especially as a blank slate, because if you've ever done jury duty... You know, you're asked, hey, do you, do you have any predisposition about this case? Because if you do, you're not supposed to be in the jury. So they're literally a totally blank sheet of paper. And the correct answer in that, in, to that question is always yes. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes that'll help, sometimes it won't. But the fact is, nobody knows what actually happened. So what they're doing is they're looking at the evidence that's available and making reasonable inferences. They're making their best guess about what they think happened. And their guess could be right or their guess could be wrong. And I tell my clients, if I have to put you in front of a jury, there's a 10% chance you're getting convicted. And I don't care how innocent you are. Because the jury might make the wrong inferences from the evidence. We have no control sure. over that. Right. Uh, in fact, I would suggest even eyewitnesses don't actually know what happened. People who were there and right. watched it don't know what actually happened in any absolute sense. Because we all know that if you take five eyewitnesses and you separate them, you get five variations of what happened, yeah. right? Their own perspective. I'd go even further and suggest that you, the defender, don't know what actually happened in any absolute sense. Uh, one of the things we do in our live classes is we have a simulator system we run people through at the end. And it's, a, it's a, of course, an artificial threat environment. It's a video they have to use a, a plastic gun to defend themselves against. And after they go through it, we ask them to turn back to the class and tell us what they saw, what they did, and why they did it. And it's a totally artificial threat environment, and the stress they experience is unbelievable. Their hands are shaking. Their, the yeah. pitch of their voice goes up. Their respiration goes up. They can't remember what they saw. They can't remember the color of the guy's shirt. They can't remember which hand the knife was in. They can't remember if there was a knife. Or they remember things that weren't there. I'll say, well, what color was the guy's hat? And they'll go, blue. There was no hat. But because I asked, they think there must be, so their brain fills in the information. Right. They can't remember what they did. Things like they can't remember how many shots they fired, for example. Or when they do remember what they did, they can't remember the sequence, the temporal sequence. So when did you draw the gun? And they're like, oh, when he reached inside his coat. And the whole class watched them draw that gun the moment the video started. The gun came out of the holster. Before there was any apparent threat at all. And it's not because these are bad people. It's the reason we run the simulator is to put people under stress so they can experience for themselves what it does, what physiological fear does to your mental bandwidth. And the way that the brain captures and stores and recalls information under stress is completely different than our normal experience. That's why police sure. officers involved in use of force events are typically given 24, 48, 72 hours before they have to give a formal statement about the event to let all those adrenaline stress chemicals filter out of the body so the brain's working normally again and they can give a, a coherent narrative. Mm. But people right. assume, this is one of the reasons people say, I can't believe I got arrested. I can't believe I'm being prosecuted. It's because nobody knows what actually happened. Even you don't know what actually happened, and so this evaluation has to be done based on the best evidence available. 
That's wow. a great example. Um, yeah, you know, now I'm just pumped to go get the DVD. I, I got to read the other nine. I know what they say. Uh, or I well, just I'll just, watch. I'll just send you guys a copy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you'll talk about it on the show, I'll send you a copy. Okay, done. Send it. We'll yeah. do an episode. Yeah, I, I think this is important because we, as gun owners, we inherently want to believe that we're prepared in all these aspects, right? If if we didn't think we were prepared, we wouldn't carry the gun. And so we got, you know, 15, yeah. estimated 15 million people walking around with concealed carry permits in this country. A large number of those probably carry on a very regular basis. And they wouldn't do that if they thought they were prepared. But if we, if we look at the people who are retaining your office and all other people that are being charged, it's pretty clear that most of them are not really square on exactly what they can and can't do. Yeah, so there's a certain tension here, right? I mean, we'd like everyone to be, you know, dry firing half an hour a day, learn the law of self-defense, take all kinds of training classes, and that's wonderful. That's a, a great goal to shoot for. But we also want people to be able to defend themselves, even if they haven't done that. And yeah. the, the truth is, most civilian cases of self-defense, that person has no tactical training, has no legal training. I mean, many times they don't even have a CCW course because they're just in their home with a gun and someone's trying to break yeah. in. And for the most part, they not everyone, of course, tragically, but for the most part, they manage to get through it. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against training. Obviously, I'm a trainer myself. I strongly encourage training. And the more training you get, the closer to zero you get your legal and physical risks in the fight, right? I mean, every fight has a greater than zero risk. A physical risk and legal risk. There's no way to guarantee. I don't care how many black belts you have and how good you are with a gun. You can never get the risk out in the physical fight to zero. What we do with our training and our practice and our situational awareness is to get it as close to zero as possible. But it's never zero. It could not be your day that day, yeah. right? Something could go wrong. It's the same with the legal risk. As I said, I tell my clients, if I have to put you in front of a jury, you could be the most innocent client I've ever had. There's a 10% chance you're getting convicted. I can't get that risk to zero. I can get it close to zero. You can get it close to zero by learning what the rules are. And it's much easier to do in the legal context than in the, the physical context, frankly, because in the legal context, you can do it in a few hours, learn what the rules are. Right. Uh, so you always have that greater than zero risk. It's impossible to get it all the way down to zero. Hmm. I lost my train of thought. No, I, I think your point is really valid, and that is that you know, we, we don't oh, the, want this to tension. discourage people. Right. Yeah. So uh, my, my concern sometimes is that people get the idea that unless I've been told by this guy on the Internet that unless I take his $5,000 week-long training class, it's pointless to try to defend myself with a gun. And I think that's the wrong message. I don't think we want people there. I think we want to get people to a level of competence at, at the very least, and that's not that hard to do. And if they can get there, just having that level of confidence and having the gun, in my mind, is halfway to being able to defend themselves. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we're about out of time for you because I know you've got a 2 o'clock. So... Any last words you want to throw out there, Andrew, before we let you go? Yeah, give us an update of what you've been working on. What's going on? Sure. Well, um, actually, I'm really excited because we've done a lot of new stuff just in the last six months. So for many years, we've had our book, The Law of Self-Defense, third edition, uh, about 25 bucks, And then we've had our live classes, which we do all over the country. We did about 50 of them last year. They're like 200 bucks a person. So yeah. a huge price gap between those two things. Either some people just got a book or people went to the class, but we had nothing in between. Uh, so we've done a bunch of stuff in between now. Um, we have uh, that DVD, Top 10 Things You Probably Don't Know About Self-Defense. It's like nine ninety nine or something like that. So people can get awesome. exposure at a very low cost. We've also taken our class, our live class, and put it in DVD form at a much lower cost than the live class because, of course, I don't have travel expenses when there's a, a DVD involved. So people can get our, our full-day level one course specific for their state law all in the DVD set and watch it at home. And we're also doing our live classes now streamed online. 
So this is not a recording. It's me teaching the class, just like I do when I'm standing at the front of a classroom. But we use a, a, a internet-based webinar software. They can chat. They can ask questions. And the feedback, I was very concerned about it because just getting people to sit in a classroom and listen to a lawyer for six hours, you think, <laughs> who the heck would want to do that, right? Um, and I was really worried on the internet, people would just get bored out of their minds, their attention would go away, sure. and you'd lose them. The feedback we're getting is absolutely tremendous. People love those mm. classes. Uh, they don't have to go sit in a gun shop someplace you know, they're not comfortable with, perhaps. Uh, they don't have to, to uh, travel anywhere. And I don't have to travel anywhere because I do it from my office. Uh, so that means that instead of charging people 200 bucks for an in-person class where I have to fly there, give the first $1,500 of class revenue to an airline and a hotel and a rental car company, and take a day out of my work to fly there and another day to fly back. Instead of all that, I can get the price down to $99 a person for exactly the same class and content, still state-specific for their classes. It's still live, so, so they can ask questions. It's still live, so they yeah. can ask questions, absolutely. Uh, and people can learn about all that stuff just at our website, lawselfdefense.com. But we have, awesome. we, have a, we have a lot of offerings on, on the table. These. Oh, another thing we're doing. Um, every week, every Wednesday at 2 p.m., we do a live Q&A session on the Internet. Uh, again, using that same webinar software. It's half an hour long. People can ask questions live or they can send in questions beforehand. And for half an hour, I just answer legal questions like I've been talking to you guys right here. Uh, it's yeah. totally free. Uh, so they do have to pre-register so they can log in to the webinar software, but mm -hmm. there's no cost for it. We leave it free for 24 hours, and then it goes on our Patreon page. So our patrons nice. who pay $4.99 a month get access not just to that week's live Q&A session, but every one we've done before. So it's literally hours and hours and hours and hours of answering self-defense law questions. That's, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm really excited about how much more content you're putting out and, and these, you know, like you said, kind of that, that middle ground opportunity for people. It, it also means that more people have access. You know, if before you ever checked out uh, Andrew's site and you said, hey, he's he's not going to be in my in my state for a couple of months or at all, right. you know, when am I going to be able to take a class from him? Hey, now you have an alternative. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so the, it's also just more accessible. More people are going to get access. So these live online classes, we're doing them every month. Yeah. So right now I'm scheduled actually for live classes all over the country through the entirety of 2018. But that means the people waiting for my New York class aren't going to see me until October. Right. Or they could do it February 3rd, which is our next live online class, and get the same content without having to wait 11 months for me to get there. Or even leave their house. Or even leave their house. <laughs> awesome. Great. Thanks again for your time today, Andrew. Thank you, gentlemen. Always happy to Much be here. Much appreciated. Sure thing. We, we love it. Well, there you go. Uh, that's our interview uh episode number two i guess with andrew brinka uh pretty good stuff there guys uh he covered a lot of different important topics uh i took out of that you know this uh, this difference differentiation between the uh use of a or the threat of force as opposed to the actual use of deadly force and how that maybe plays into things a little bit and sometimes people get themselves in trouble because they threaten deadly force when they obviously shouldn't, um, things like that. So that was, that was a good discussion. And then also some of the touch of him touching on, you know, it's kind of, kind of timely information, right? Cause I, I asked him specifically about, uh, I didn't mention any names, although I think he did mention SIG. Uh, but at the time, actually just before we went to shot show, we had, uh, done some testing with the honor guard from honor defense that had, been discovered to have some sort of drop issue as well. And, and in all honesty, I would actually almost be a little bit more concerned about that gun than the, than the P320. Um, just know, by the way, in all fairness, the, both of these companies have done a pretty good job, I think, of addressing those issues. 
In the case of Sig Sauer, the P320, I'm actually sitting here stripping down. I am a certified uh, P320 armorer, and I am stripping down in its entirety my P320 before I get ready to send it in to Sig for the voluntary upgrade uh, for the trigger and all that. So anyway, I've been <laughs> working on that and doing a very thorough cleaning uh, while I was listening to uh, together with you guys with this interview with Andrew. Um, the... Uh, the other day we were at the range and we got a little bit of a sandstorm and I quite literally have sand everywhere in several of my guns that were out and being used or on the table or something uh, while we were there at the range. And so I really didn't feel good about sending in this P320 filled with sand to uh, SIG for the voluntary uh, upgrade. Uh, Charlie says, uh, excellent or uh, awesome interview, in fact. Uh, so that's great. Thank you so much. Um, and actually a question from Timothy, he says, uh, came in late. See in the comments, you guys are talking about the SIG P320. I just bought one, the compact RX. I assume that the issue was fixed before it was shipped to the store. I bought it from, I haven't been able to find out how to see when it was manufactured. Do you know how I can find that out? Are certain serial numbers associated with a manufacturer date? I'm sure they do. I mean, I'm sure there is a series of serial numbers or manufacturing dates that would indicate whether it was, post or pre-upgrade or post-upgrade. Uh, I don't know what the specifics on that are, but there is a website you can go to on SIG's uh, website. Uh, there's a, there's a, a link there where you can click and plug in your serial number and it'll tell you whether your particular model needs to be sent in or not for the voluntary upgrade. Um, and so what I could tell you though too, just a quick glance, Timothy, is if your trigger is thin and hollowed out on the backside as opposed to the older thicker fatter heavier trigger um then you've got the you've got the new version that's what they did is they reduce that's one of the things they did is they really significantly reduced the mass or the weight of the trigger not the weight in terms of pull weight uh, although there have been some indications or reports from people that have done the voluntary upgrade that the that the upgrade itself actually is a little bit of an improvement on the trigger, reducing the felt weight of the trigger a little bit. But I'm actually talking about the actual physical weight of the trigger, Timothy, that it's it's a lot thinner and a narrower profile. Um, that'll in indicate whether you have the new one or the old one. It's just a quick, easy, like if you sent me a picture of your gun, I could probably look at it and like that and tell you whether you have the new one or the old one. Chances are, if you bought it recently, you probably have the new one because they, they took them off the shelves and stopped selling them for, for several months there while they were getting everything switched out. So, um, I promised you guys, I had a question that came in from a listener of the podcast from Aaron, and he brings up some really interesting points uh, dealing with uh, the Parkland shooting, um, the Parkland shooter, gun violence restraining orders or extreme risk protection orders is another term for it that is, that is thrown, thrown around. So I want to go ahead and read this. It's somewhat lengthy, but he just really brings up some, some interesting things and I want to provide some additional insight from, from myself as I've really been thinking and digging kind of deeply somewhat on these issues recently. <clears throat> he says, Gentlemen, in this episode, he's referring to episode 209, by the way, you, you all addressed an article on gun violence restraining orders. More specifically, Jacob referred to a conversation with a friend in federal law enforcement who spoke about how oftentimes law enforcement has their hands tied and are unable to address individuals that are clearly a danger to themselves or others. 
This brought on an extended conversation around when a restraining order of this nature might, with the devil being in the details, meet Jacob's two criteria for any new infringements on constitutionally guaranteed rights. My question is, and please be gracious in its interpretation, but Jacob, in your conversation with your friend, did this kind of order that infringes on due process seem necessary? Now, I, know, I realize Jacob, by the way, is not here to uh, provide his input on this, um, but I'll do my best to speak for him. Let's say that we agree that this might save lives, but have we addressed the existing laws on the books and determined that they can't be amended to untie law enforcement's hands? Or is it just cleaner to write a new to, to write new laws that extend these additional powers? As Riley pointed out, there seems to have been many times when law enforcement might have failed in the Parkland situation. I also don't know the legal aspects for the agencies on how their hands might have been tied, so want to give them the benefit of the doubt as they are overwhelmingly outstanding individuals that are willing to wear the badge, and that is an awesome responsibility, and it truly is. You guys always do a great job of digging into these topics, so would be interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all the great work you do, and I really do appreciate that question. There's actually a secondary piece here, and I'm gonna bring that up separately here, but I wanna address um, this, this first piece first. So it's been made a big deal about in the news, uh, the uh, failings of law enforcement in interacting with the Parkland shooter. Uh, they were called dozens of times to apparently to that house where he resided on various issues. Uh, there was a report that supposedly uh, the Parkland shooter uh, pointed his gun at the head of a family member and things of that nature. And so it, it certainly seems on the surface that when you hear things like that, you, you, it seems like somebody somewhere failed, right? And it's like, how can law enforcement go to a place dozens of times and not really come away with anything, right? And that that's a, that's a reasonable thought. That's a reasonable feeling to have. It definitely does make things, it makes you wonder. And, and I definitely, I get the feeling <laughs> that there should have been something somewhere that they could have done. Uh, but it's hard to know without actually being there in person and experiencing it yourself, uh, whether as an officer or whether looking at something, even as an attorney of some sort. Um, I don't know if you, if without having all the details of the situations, it's hard to really know for sure. But what I can tell you something about is many people have brought up the idea of the Baker Act, which is a, a law specific to Florida, although many other states have similar laws in place. The Baker Act, I want to just touch on right now for a moment and give you guys some additional details because I was actually recently interacting with somebody. He may very well be listening to this episode. Um, he mentioned on our Instagram, he commented on our Instagram uh, page, uh, he commented about, well, you know, why couldn't we have just Baker Acted this guy? You know, because that, that's in place. Seems like we should have been able to put him under a temporary hold, have him committed into, you know, an institute, mental institution for a time, and that would have, you know, resulted in him likely losing his his firearms. Okay, so that's a, that's a fair point. But there's some problems that may have arised. I don't know this for a fact, but just looking at the situation and knowing what we do know about the Parkland shooter... Here's what I can tell you as it relates to the Baker Act. This is really important things. This is this is really important to understand. This this amount of detail. Okay, so I'm going to get pretty detailed here on what the Baker Act does or does not do. Um, and by the way, I'm I'm going almost straight from Wikipedia uh, uh, as far as giving you some of this information. It's pretty straightforward. All right. So for the Baker Act 
to be instituted. And by the way, the Baker Act results in an involuntary examination of an individual, okay, or an involuntary commitment. Uh, It can be initiated by judges, law enforcement officers, physicians, or mental health professionals. Uh, There must be evidence that the person, and there's two things that you've got to meet. Number one, possibly has a mental illness as defined in the Baker Act. So there's additional details as to what defines that. And number two, is in danger of becoming a harm to self, harm to others, or is self-neglectful, also as defined in the Baker Act. Okay. Examinations, these involuntary holds may may last up to 72 hours after a person is deemed medically stable and occur in over 100 Florida Department of Children and Families designated receiving facilities statewide. Okay. So basically under the Baker Act, if you're committed, it's up to 72 hours after you are found to be medically stable by obviously a, a physician and it's going to, you know, you will be placed in one of these 100 Florida Department of Children and Families hospitals, essentially, right? Okay. So that's a little bit of detail about the, what the Baker Act is. But there's an important clarification to be made. And that has to do with there's several, I believe there's three criteria that must also be met. Or that uh, you've got to make sure you, you, you evaluate as well to determine whether you can Baker Act somebody or not. All right. So here are those criteria. Okay, among these criteria are the following elements that by themselves do not qualify an individual as having met or meeting the criteria. So there's even other things that might have to be considered. Okay, here, number one, reason to believe that the person has a mental illness. Okay, refusal of voluntary examination, and the person is unable to determine whether an, an examination is necessary. Criteria are not met simply because a person has a mental illness, appears to have mental problems, takes psychiatric medication, or has an emotional outburst. And here's the third thing, and this one, or excuse me, maybe there's four things I was meaning to touch on. Here's the, here's the third one. Criteria are not met simply because a person refuses voluntary examination. All right, here's the, here's the really important one. Criteria are not met if there are family members or friends that will help prevent any potential and present threat of substantial harm. That one is key and likely played a role in this Parkland shooter situation. Okay. Please keep in mind, we had a report that apparently the Parkland shooter pointed a gun at the head of a family member. Okay. Police were called, they showed up, but nobody was arrested. Nobody was charged with anything. And the only reason I can think that that might have happened. Now, could the, could it have been a failing on law enforcement's part? Maybe, but I don't think that would be the case. I mean, if you get a call as a law enforcement officer, you're told to respond to a certain address. You show up and you are told that the reason you're called there is because somebody pointed a gun at somebody. Somebody threatened somebody with a deadly weapon. That's a pretty serious thing. Typically, somebody is going to leave that scene in handcuffs. The only thing I can think is that family members chose not to or refused to actually provide details that were necessary uh, leading to the the arrest of that individual. All right? In other words, family members essentially refused to press charges or they refused to uh, to act as witnesses, to, to tell the law enforcement officer that was that was responding what happened, and thus there was no action that he that he could take. Okay, that's the only thing I could think. All right, now that's that's key because 
let me reread this 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 criteria. Criteria are met or not met, excuse me, if there are family members or friends that will help prevent any potential and present threat of substantial harm. So you cannot Baker Act somebody if you have family members or friends there that will help prevent that potential threat or present threat of substantial harm. And I suspect that that could have had a uh, played a role in this case as well. So you have a Parkland shooter that may have exhibited signs of mental illness, may have exhibited certain uh, uh, threats, whatever it is, and law enforcement may have been called there. But if you had a family member, which I suspect he likely did, has said, "You know what, sir? You know, you know, you know what, officer? We've got it under control. We're working with him. We're keeping an eye on him. We're taking care of him. You can't, you cannot Baker Act him." So that's where this gun violence protection order or, or extreme risk protection order uh, type thing may come in. So I, I, I understand the outrage and the frustration from people, from the public, around this idea of why couldn't they have done something? You know, Because it seems like we should have been able to stop this kid from committing that shooting. He, he clearly had some, something wrong with him. Something's not right, right? But it could be, I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm saying based on what I've just shared with you about the Baker Act and and other details, it's possible that even with all of these law enforcement calls to this residence, it's possible that they may not have been able to do anything. All right. And so we do have to ask the question, if we really are serious about mental health and and mental health is a a whole, I mean, that's a, that's a big can of worms to open up, right? There's a lot of different approaches that could be taken. There's a lot. We we know we have a short uh, uh, supply of resources in the mental health uh, world, right? We know that. There's a lot of things that could be done. But from a legal standpoint, as far as stop, like literally using the law to stop somebody that may be a threat to themselves or others around them and may have firearms in their possession and we may want to be able to supposedly, you know, supposedly take those firearms from that individual, it might have to come down to the use of one of these extreme risk or gun violence, as the NRA referred to it, protection or restraining orders. I'm not sure how crazy I am about that idea, but if you're serious about having something in place that allows you to actually take steps in a situation like this that would give you the the legal, you know, power to to stop an individual like this, that may be the instrument that you need to be able to do so. So I think the then the next important discussion to have is, can we craft an extreme risk protection order type law that has appropriate protections in it and criteria that must be met that still preserve due process? I think a couple of key things must be present. I think the right to a hearing, so for the accused individual, the person that has had this extreme risk protection order placed against them, I think they should have within a reasonable amount of time, and I think 72 hours is a reasonable amount of time, they should be able to go before a judge and fight their their case, right? And fight, you know, and be able to present why they are not a threat, why they shouldn't have their firearms taken from them, and so forth. That That's a very simple, you know, basic uh, a 
piece of it I think has to be there. Okay. I'm not, because of time, I don't know that I'm going to go in too much greater detail here, but I think that's a like that's a big one because we've seen some laws like this passed in Oregon and Washington and a few other places. And in some of those cases, it, you you might not get a hearing for three three weeks or even longer. To me, that's a problem. To me, that interferes with due process, right? So I I think because it has been not sh- it has been shown that laws like this Baker Act are constitutional, at least to my knowledge, it hasn't been challenged successfully. Um, so if you're okay with the idea of a Baker Act, meaning that you can involuntarily, and this is true in most states, you can involuntarily commit somebody to a mental health institution because you suspect that they are a danger to themselves or someone else um, with some specific criteria, then you, I think you should be okay to admit, or at least I think you should admit that you're okay to this idea of an extreme risk protection order that is similar, that maybe is a little bit more focused and covers some other situations where a Baker Act may not cover. Okay, But the important thing throughout all this is that other constitutional rights do need to be protected as much as possible, and due process needs to be preserved. So how's that? That's a long-winded answer as far as my stance on, on this type of issue. And I think if we, I think we can probably find a way to craft laws that still preserve the best of our ability, you know, within reason, due process, but yet still give perhaps law enforcement the power that they may that they may need to execute these types of protection orders when there clearly is some sort of problem. So let's get to work and let's find those solutions and let's find you know what is acceptable and what does preserve our, our due process rights as, as well as everything else where it comes to these types of situations. Here's the second piece of this question from Aaron. On another subject, and here I have to confess I am behind on my podcast episodes in the last month, so catching up in reverse order. Hey, that's cool, man. But today when I heard you naming the shooters in Maryland and Parkland by name, it seemed a bit odd to me in some way. Uh, what I realized that Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire about a month ago decided to put in place a policy to not speak the names of mass shooters. It deprives them the notoriety that they are often looking for. You can take or leave the logic that Ben, ben puts forward below, but I thought I would share, and he shares a link of a story of, of why the Daily Wire instituted that policy. Now, there's been a, another comment or two about that uh, here at the Concealed Carry Podcast. I, I'll admit, guys, you know, I, I look at what we do and think, we're, we're, we're small. <laughs> we're a small slice of the pie where it comes to our reach uh, as, as a media company and as a podcast. Like, to me, it just, I have not, I have not really taken this type of a, of a stance very seriously uh, for us personally, as far as not naming the shooters. But I think, you know, uh, as I've been doing some thinking and reading and additional uh, uh, reasoning within myself and thinking about how to move forward as a podcast and even as concealedcarry.com, I'll, I'll just, I, I, I can't speak for the website right now at this time, but what I can say about the podcast is that we will institute a policy going forward where we will not name the uh, shooters, the, those that commit these mass shootings and other heinous acts. Um, there's no reason not, or there's no reason to name them. There's no reason not to have a policy like that. Certainly doesn't hurt anybody. We can talk about the details. We can talk about what happened, what went down, uh, but we're not going to give these guys their 15 minutes of fame. So, does that sound fair to everybody? I think so. So let me know your thoughts and, and questions and comments, uh, whether it's about extreme risk protection orders, whether it's about the Parkland shooter, whether it's about this policy of not naming them, 
whatever it is, hit us up, podcast at concealedcarry.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we appreciate all of your support of the podcast. Uh, thank you for supporting our sponsors. Just a reminder, today's episode is brought to you by Springfield Armory, by the Law of Self-Defense, lawofselfdefense.com, Andrew Branca, and also by Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com. Appreciate your support of those sponsors. Hope that you'll go check them out and maybe consider giving them a little bit of your business. I'll, I'll definitely say, guys, I mean, if you haven't heard enough of Andrew Branca, you should know that he is, I mean, you should understand that he is the man where it comes to that kind of stuff. If you don't have his book or if you haven't taken one of his classes, do it. At least get the book. Read the book. The book will change your life as far as how you view the the use of self-defense. So really, really good and important stuff. It's especially applicable for us as concealed carriers. So what are you waiting for? Go check out Andrew Branca, lawofselfdefense.com. And actually, if you go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash, I think it's... um, Actually, shoot, I can't remember. I know you can go to, let's do this one, concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D, which is law of self-defense. So go to concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. That'll take you to a page where you can see all of Andrew's products and services and things like that, and you can you can, you can can check it out that way for sure. All right, cool. Charlie says, spot on, Riley. Glad that's helpful for you. Uh, anyway, I'm going to sign out relatively. I actually have no idea what the exact time frame or, or, or length. Uh, I guess about, about about an hour for today's episode. Uh, it's a little bit shorter than what we've been doing recently. We just have had so much to talk about. Uh, we'll try to get maybe back into a groove. We'll see what this, this next week's uh, news stories look like. But we'll try to get more into a groove of more reasonable length of episodes, I would hope. Anyway, guys, thanks so much. Take care. We'll see you next week. And uh, just a reminder to train right, train safe and train often so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.